Welcome to All Rise with Diane Godfrey. True stories from around the courthouse from the lady who wrote everything down. I'm Jordan Rich, Boston-based broadcaster and podcaster, and, and it's a great pleasure to work alongside Diane on this podcast. Diane, why don't you provide an introduction to today's guest and topic and then take it away. Today's guest is Judge Robert Cosgrove, a presiding justice on the Superior Court bench here in Massachusetts. The Superior Court, sometimes referred to as the Trial Court, deals with civil litigation as well as serious criminal matters. For example, rapes, armed robberies, and murder. And that is where I first encountered Judge Cosgrove. I met his honor in a courtroom where he was a prosecutor prosecuting a case for the Norfolk County District Attorney's Office, and I was the court reporter. It was a murder trial, and the name of the case was Commonwealth versus Diane Farley, which will be the subject matter of an upcoming podcast. When Judge Cosgrove became a judge, I was assigned to his courtroom as a court reporter for multiple criminal trials. I can tell you firsthand his character traits make for a great judge. I find him fair, open-minded, and he has a wonderful working knowledge of the law. He runs a great courtroom. When this idea of this podcast was hatched, I thought it would be nice to have a sitting judge come on and talk about what it's really like to be a judge. Well, instantaneously, Judge Cosgrove jumped into my head. So I approached him and asked him if he would consider coming on to the show. And he graciously accepted my invitation to come on as a guest. He's an all-around great guy, and it was really fun sitting down and chatting with him. Please enjoy the Honorable Robert Cosgrove. Hello, Judge Cosgrove. Welcome to All Rise with Diane Godfrey. Hello, Diane. Thank you for inviting me. We're very excited here. You're an honored guest. And I guess we'll get right into it. I had a few questions about, you know, the life of a judge. And the first thing right out of the gate I'd like to ask you is, just how do you become a judge? Well, uh, usually when I'm asked that question, I, uh, I try and be a little humorous. I say uh, <laughs> the way to become a judge is score in the top 1% of the judicial aptitude test which of course doesn't exist. And sometimes I say that I was sitting in my office one day while I was a lawyer and I got a call from the governor and he said, I've heard such wonderful things about you. I'd just be honored if you would let me make me make you a judge. Uh, but of course, that's not true either. <clears throat> the real answer is you have to apply for it. Since I think about 1975, there has been something called the Judicial Nominating Commission. Uh, you submit a written application to them. Uh, the Judicial nomina Nominating Commission is made up of uh, about 21 people. Most, but not all of them, are, are lawyers. Uh, the application is in two parts. Uh, they review first the second part. Uh, which doesn't have your identifying information. It has a writing sample and other material that might be relevant to your qualifications as a judge. And they look that over and they decide whether they might want to interview you. At that point, they look at the first part of the application, which does have your identifying information and a list of references. Uh, you get called in for an interview. Um, I don't mind telling you it's a somewhat intimidating uh, process. Uh, you're at uh, 
usually whatever law firm, big law firm that the chairman of the Judicial Nominating Commission might be associated with. And you're in a large conference room and you're being interviewed by 21 or so people um, all firing questions at you. So um, uh, it's, uh, it's a little bit of a nerve wracking process, but uh, uh, after that's over, uh, you uh, you submit letters of recommendation from uh, various uh, folks that you hope will uh, impress the Judicial Nominating Commission. And ultimately they take a vote as to whether or not they're going to send your name on to the governor. Uh, usually they send between three to six names for every opening. So from there, each governor has his own sort of screening process. Uh, in my case, I was interviewed by Governor Romney's chief of staff. Um, oftentimes, uh, if you get through that interview, the governor may want to interview you uh, himself or herself. Um, and ultimately, the governor makes a decision as to whether he is going to nominate you for a judgeship. Uh, before he makes that decision, they do a big background check on you. So um, are you, uh, uh, do you have a clean record with the Board of Bar Overseers? Uh, do you have uh, any uh, criminal incidents in your past? Hopefully not. Uh, they'll send state police around to uh, talk to your neighbors. Uh, in my case, the state police officer who was doing the background check for me said, would you please give me the names of uh, three or four of your neighbors I can talk to and, and, and please tell them that I'm going to uh, be showing up because people get nervous when there's a knock on the door <laughs> and there's a state policeman standing there saying, I want to ask you questions about <laughs> Cosgrove or, or whoever. Um, they might think you're a serial killer or something. Right, or a meth salesman or something like that. So... Um, if you get through all of that, um, then a couple of bar associations do checks, which mostly involve calling around to lawyers and judges that you might uh, have uh, appeared in front of and asking questions like, what kind of person is this? Does he or she know what he's doing? Uh, is this a person who would be uh, respectful to lawyers and litigants? those kinds of questions. And when the governor gets that information back, he decides whether he's going to nominate you. At that point, uh, once you're nominated, there is a hearing before the governor's council. Uh, you uh, uh, are questioned by the governor's counselors yourself. You usually have uh, four or five people maybe to speak in your behalf. Uh, there's an opportunity for those who oppose you. Um, hopefully there are a few of those uh, to, uh, to come and speak. And then sometime, usually within the next two weeks, uh, the Governor's Council uh, takes a vote. And uh, if they approve you, the Secretary of State gives you your commission and Shazam, you're a judge. Uh, so that's the way it, it works. Um, it's... Um, um, you know, anyone can go online and uh, look up and uh, see what the uh, the application to become a judge looks like. And, wow. Uh, it okay. is um, 
it is comprehensive enough when you look at it, I guarantee you that just filling out the form uh, is a disincentive, I think, to, uh, to some people. Um, I just had one thing as you were speaking, one thing that just occurred to me. First of all, I was remiss. I did not tell the listeners that we're speaking about the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, and you're currently a Superior Court judge. A couple of things that I would like to ask that I think the listeners would be interested is the timeline from A to Z, from the day you begin to this process, you know, is it like years or is it six months? And do you have any say or is it the governor's call where you go? In other words, do you start as a juvenile? If he said to you, do you want to be a judge? You're going to be a juvenile court judge. Do you have any say on what bench you will ultimately preside? Well, not much, to be honest with you. The the short answer is, is the governor will say to you, you know, I have a position open in the juvenile court or the superior court or the appeals court or, or whatever. And uh, are you interested? Then... I suppose you can say, no, I'd rather wait till there's an opening in a, in a different court, or you can, uh, you can accept uh, what's offered. Uh, in my case, as a matter of fact, the uh, Judicial Nominating Commission sent my name up for a position on the uh, appeals court, and I was interviewed for that uh, by uh, the governor's chief of staff. And, had a very nice call that said, well, we loved you, but the governor loves somebody else a little more than you. So we're not appointing you to the appeals court, but we'll keep you in mind. Uh, and uh, at some point later on, they called me in and said, well, we have a, uh, a position open. It's not for the appeals court. Would you be interested in the superior court? And I said, well, let me think about it. I've thought of it about it. Yes. Uh, so... <laughs> You know, that's that's the way it happened with me. And I know uh, I know of other people that have applied for one court. I think the most common thing is people who apply for the district court and they might be appointed to the superior court or or vice versa. But it's really entirely the governor's call. Well, I do notice over the years from working in Superior Court that sometimes we get a new judge and they're they're not new judges. They're new to Superior Court. They come from the district court. So that happens too. Yes, uh, and and in that case, the district court judge would have submitted a new application to the judicial nominating oh, commission. Oh, that's how it goes. I'd, I'd like to be appointed to the superior court. So and time. Oh, excuse me. Pardon me. No, that's okay. So so that would mean they go through the process uh, essentially uh, all over again. And the timeline for something like this, generally? I would say it would be unusual if it were to take uh, less than six months. Uh, it could take uh, more than that. Uh, usually there's an executive order in place that says once your name is sent up to the governor, your nomination remains active for uh, 18 months, something like that. So... Uh, if, if your name's sent up and you're not picked for position A, then you remain in the pool uh, as a possibly to be considered for position B, which is sort of what happened to me, actually. And in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, I point out that these are lifetime appointments, but there's a mandatory retirement at 70, which I think is ridiculous at this point. 70 is young today. But we do have that recall as well, the two-year recall, if you can speak to that subject. 
Well, those of us who are uh, approaching age 70, who shall remain nameless, uh, thank you for that sentiment. Uh, the, uh, the state constitution was amended, uh, I think sometime in the 70s to, uh, to uh, establish 70 as the mandatory retirement age for judges. There is a provision, as you point out, that the Chief Justice of the State Supreme Court, our highest appeals court in this Commonwealth, um, of course, consults with the Chief Justice of, of whatever court you're in, uh, may recall judges if there's a need uh, for certain uh, positions for a period of up to uh, to two years. And uh, sometimes that happens. It, it, it usually happens when there are a number of vacancies in the uh, in the court, the governor, for one reason or another, hasn't got around to filling them, or the governor's council hasn't got around to uh, approving the new judgeship. So you have this need for judges, and uh, you have the money to pay them because the slots are open, and uh, so uh, they find a judge who's uh, willing to. Uh, to work for the difference between his retirement pay or her retirement pay and and a judge's salary and they come back and uh, do the job for up to two years. I'll jump in here and uh, thank you, Diane. This is a great, great guest we have today. Judge Cosgrove, what's your opinion on the election of judges, which does occur in some states, versus the appointment process that we've been just talking about? Any thoughts on whether one over the other is is better or not? Well, you won't be totally surprised to learn that as someone who was appointed to the position, uh, I'm, uh, I'm in favor of the uh, appointment uh, view. I, I, it's, it's, it's what they have on the federal side and what we have in a minority of states, including Massachusetts. And I think there's a couple of virtues to it. Uh, one is that... Um, you don't have to worry about running for re-election. So you don't have that pressure in the back of your mind when you're sitting on a controversial case. Uh, you can you can feel free to do the right thing, secure in the knowledge that uh, uh, if, if the right thing, as you see it, is unpopular, uh, it's not going to come back and uh, bite you. Uh, second, uh, the idea of being a judge out there campaigning for the job. Um, I mean, what would one say as a campaign? I promise to jail more people than somebody else, or I promise to go easy on uh, support payments for fathers or hard on support payments. I, I, I mean, the, the idea is you're supposed to be deciding according to the law, not uh, uh, based on appeals to the public or your own uh, idiosyncratic sense of uh, what you'd like to see. Uh, and I think you get, um, you get people who, frankly, would not uh, wish to undertake uh, politicking, but are very good at uh, judicial decision-making uh, who uh, are appointed to the bench. Now, the, the big argument, I think, for elected judges is accountability, that um, if you get a bad judge in there and it's, it's clear to the public that he's a, uh, 
uh, or she is a, is is a bad judge, then the people can indicate that by voting to uh, remove him. But uh, I, I will tell you a little story if I can. I was at a a seminar. Uh, oh, right after Barack Obama was uh, was elected, and it was given by one of the instructors was a former judge from another state, uh, and. Uh, virtually every district court judge in his case um, had been swept out of office because they were running in the Obama year and Obama had uh, uh, racked up a good total and it carried over and a uh, whole new slate of Democratic judges was uh, coming in. And he said that was a mirror image of the Reagan election uh, when the state was filled with Democratic judges and they were all defeated by Republican judges wow. running on Reagan's coattails. Well, aside from the fact that it strikes me as, as a sort of a foolish way to decide if you want someone as a judge, you can imagine almost every judge in your judicial system is walking in on January whatever, and it's their first day on the job and they've never done the job before. That, that just um, seems to me to be one of the potential dangers of, of electing judges. Is there anything that has surprised you? Like when you, you know, you got on the bench and now you're a judge and you're wearing that black robe. Is that thing comfortable, by the way? Do you mind wearing it or? It's, uh, well, I have uh, I've developed a more sympathy for women because I <laughs> understand the... Uh, the difficulty sometimes of going up and down stairs when you might uh, trip on a long trailing garment. Uh, I, see. I suppose that's one plus. Um, it's not a problem most of the time. It can get, uh, if you have a courtroom that's not well air conditioned, <clears throat> which as you know, Diane describes a number of our courtrooms. Oh, yes. Uh, it yes. can get rather warm under that robe. Yes. And then there, you know, might be a tendency to get a little drowsy, which is not a good thing in a judge. Uh, so that can be a problem. But for the most part, it's it's no trouble. You know what I did want to ask you that I almost forgot. But um, when you do become a judge, I just know this from being a court reporter. I know that the governor ultimately swears you in in the at the state house, But the next day they have a beautiful ceremony in Superior Court, and they hold it in the old Supreme Judicial Court in, in Suffolk County Courthouse. And it's, I've been a court reporter maybe a do half dozen times for these, and they're really special. I don't think the average citizen here in Massachusetts, I mean, I'm sure it's an open venue they could go. It usually happens around nine o'clock in the morning, and it's really a beautiful, beautiful tradition. And one judge hands his seat or her seat over to, like I saw Judge Mulligan hand his seat to Judge Rosalind Miller, and it was special. And there's a ton of judges and they all come in with their robes. It's, it, it's really something to see. Yes, it's a nice ceremony. It's, uh, it's not always conducted in uh, Suffolk Superior Court, although I would say the vast bulk of them is. Uh -huh. In my case, the Chief Justice at the time, Barbara Rouse, uh, asked me if I would prefer to have my induction ceremony, it's called, at uh, Norfolk Superior Court, where I had 
pretty much practiced for uh, almost all of my legal career and where uh, I knew the local bar and, and, and the clerk's office and so forth. So in, in, in my case, we had it in first session in Norfolk County, which uh, uh, which I'm, I know is a venue you're very familiar with. Oh, yes. Uh, I'm sorry you weren't there on that day, but, uh, you know, it's the kind of occasion that we all uh, we all remember. And the Chief Justice goes through and tells you the history of your seat, who the first judge was oh, to yes. have it, the last judge was to have it. And um, um, I, it's, it's a nice thing. You're right. You know, I have to ask. I have been around the courthouse now for about 30 years as a court reporter. I've never seen a judge ever, ever use a gavel. Why not? Oh, I was afraid you're going to ask me that because <laughs> I don't really know the answer. Um, okay. A lot of us have um, like ceremonial gavels that our wives or friends or right. significant others might have given us as uh, a present. I've, I've got one somewhere with my name inscribed on it that my my late wife gave me when I was appointed. Um, uh, but, but we never use it. And uh, I'm told that it's uh, a point of pride with uh, Massachusetts judges that we can control a courtroom without having to resort to a gavel, but uh, I've since uh, I've since come to understand that uh, uh, the gavel is uh, more or less banishing in a lot of other states other than Massachusetts as well. I don't know why that is. Sometimes the court officer will have a gavel and he will gavel the court to order just as the judge is, is coming in, but uh, I've never even held one on my hands on the bench and uh, I've got this far, so I guess I don't really need one. <laughs> well, Judge, not all maestros or conductors use a baton, so maybe it's a carryover from that. I, I have another question that is such a fun question, and you must get it a lot at dinner parties, but what is similar to reality when we're watching TV, Law & Order? Is, is any of that uh, – well, obviously it's research, but how close to reality is what we see on a television drama on average? Um, well, there are some aspects that are, are close to, uh, close to reality, but, but for the most part, uh, not so much. Um, one of the things that, uh, that always amuses me, I mean, I think the law and order shows are, are, are pretty good for the most part, but, uh, a lawyer will make an objection, and for some reason, on that show, the judge always says, counsel, in my chambers. So they all go trotting off into the judge's chambers. And I'm always saying, you'll appreciate this, Diane, where's the court reporter? Where's the person making a record? So that if, if the judge makes an incorrect ruling, the appellate court will have a record to look at. Uh, we never see a we never see a court reporter, um, and then uh, each lawyer makes an argument that lasts about uh, sixty seconds. I mean, my life would be bliss if all lawyers would confine their arguments to sixty seconds, but uh, you've got to do it for television. 
and then the judge immediately off the top of uh, his or her head uh, makes a ruling on some uh, complex legal issue, doesn't uh, say, uh, all right, well, I want to think about it, I'll give you my ruling tomorrow, or I want to consult some law books, or I want you to submit a memo on that. Uh, it's all done uh, instantaneously, and everything's resolved within uh, a minute or two. So, um, so that's uh, certainly one difference I'd point to. Uh, if you're, uh, um, you know, one of the things that uh, judges do is we take turns addressing the jury pool. And uh, when it's my turn, when my week whirls around for the first four days, I tell them fairly standard stuff, the history of the juries and so forth and so on. But by day five, I'm tired of listening to myself. So I have a whole uh, shtick on the difference between TV and what you're going to see when you actually uh, oh. walk into the courtroom. And uh, it's, uh, it's it's kind of fun. Um, I would say it varies from somewhere remotely in the ballpark to not much resembling what actually happens you know judge i've noticed something over the years i noticed that there's less and less what they call in-camera hearings which would mean you in the in your lobby with lawyers it, have the laws changed like everything is on the record now and things used to not be on the record so much well um i think it was driven by some uh unfortunate incidents, frankly, where um, there were appeals and that sort of thing where lawyers represented or defendants represented that the judge said this and the judge said, that's not what I said at all. And there was no, uh, there was no record. So that's one reason. The, the other reason is uh, you get in the lobby and uh, uh, very often the judge knows one or more of the lawyers appearing in front of them. And in addition to the, um, in addition to the issues, there may be a little socializing and back and forth and exchange of pleasantries. It's harmless, but it's a time eater. So when you have them up to the sidebar or where you bring the stenographer in, uh, the court reporter in, Everybody knows it's business. Let's cut to the chase and, and, and get it done. So I'd say those are the two reasons. You know, um, one thing that I did want to point out, and I think you would agree that I don't think a lot of people know this, but they would like to, is the practice that we have here in the Commonwealth. I have no idea what goes on in other states of rotating judges on a regular basis. Now, back when John Adams was a lawyer, they did it on horseback. You guys have the luxury of a vehicle, but like judges just don't stay put in one courthouse. Like you'd go from a different county every six or four months. Can you speak to that and why? Well, um, I think as you point out, there's a historical basis for it. Oftentimes the sittings of a particular uh, court in a particular county, if you go back to, if you go far enough back, there wasn't enough business uh, to keep a court going nine to five, 365 days a year or whatever it comes out to, less holidays and weekends and so forth. So 
uh, you'd, you'd have a judge in, in one place uh, for a while uh, for a sitting and then he'd move on. Or in those days, it was a he would move on to uh, another uh, location. Uh, I think uh, the practice has uh, sort of remained in effect in the, in the Superior Court. Um, pretty much we do it in uh, in uh, three month rotations. Uh, every three months, uh, there's the possibility of a change. We we may we may not change, but uh, there's certainly that uh, possibility. I, for example. Uh, did the first three months of the year sitting in a criminal session in Dedham, Norfolk County, and I'm now sitting in a criminal session in Fall River in, in Bristol County. So part of the reason for that, I think, is uh, uh, the judges like it. Uh, we get yeah. to see um, different ways that different things are handled by different clerk's offices in different uh -huh. counties. We get the perspective of different lawyers. Um, there's less of a chance, I think, uh, the feeling is that uh, the lawyers and the judges get too comfortable with one another. Um, and uh, with uh, the rotation and a new person coming in to pick up the case, um, that's uh, thought of as a benefit and in the district court i don't know how my colleagues in the district court do it they may be in uh, in quincy one day and then fall river the next day and um out in worcester the day after that uh, they really move around many of them quite a bit you know there's something that you did say and i think it's interesting to point out that you said that not all you know courthouses are, have the same caseload but back like in the time of John Adams, they would come into town and the cry that we hear today each morning to open court, I don't know if it's the same or a similar one, but if you ever notice at Suffolk Superior Court in Boston, it looks like a, a lectern in front of the building. It has a name in it, the name escapes me. But when they would come into town, they'd let the citizens of Boston know by the cry. From that stand, the court officer will cry, hear ye, hear ye, hear ye, all persons having any business before the honorable court. Draw near, give your attendance, and you shall be heard. I think that's just so interesting. It was an invitation for the public to uh, present themselves to the court and uh, receive uh, justice at the, the hands of the court. And uh, we still do that. It's a means of... Uh, establishing the formality at the outset of the uh the hearing and uh it's 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 part of a great tradition so i'm i'm glad we still do that i've heard over the years like a judge will say to me i'm on call this weekend and i'm like what is that and they said for restraining orders can you speak to that and how that works well there is a system that was set up uh i'm not quite sure how long ago in massachusetts called uh judicial response if uh, someone is in need of a judge after hours uh, a judge is on call uh, and um, it's spread out amongst all the judges of the trial court uh, the probate court the superior court the district court and so forth 
uh, and uh, with all of us doing it for a week at a time, used to be a month, but that was before my time, you wind up doing it uh, for a week about uh, once every nine months. You're on, essentially, you're on call uh, taking telephone calls from police departments um, from the time the court closes at 4.30 in the afternoon to the time it opens at uh, 9 o'clock in the morning. So uh, some nights you may not get any, any sleep at all because the calls come in fast and furious, and other nights you may just get one or two calls. And there are various uh, possible uh, emergencies, uh, sometimes... Uh, a police department has an emergency need for a search warrant, uh, so you might be authorizing a search warrant. Uh, sometimes uh, a hospital may want uh, permission to, to um, dispense with parental consent because a child or someone needs an emergency operation that they feel is... Uh, is uh, very important and has to be undertaken immediately and the parents for whatever reason don't want to consent to it uh, so you may do a hearing you may go out to the hospital and do the hearing there uh, but most of the time as your question suggests i would say that about 98 percent of the calls that we get are for abuse prevention orders either the police have gone to a house um, in response to some kind of domestic uh, disturbance or somebody has come into the police station and says uh, my spouse is is battering me or uh, threatening me or we're separating and he's demanding uh, he's, he's trying to force me to have sex with him uh, those sorts of things um, then uh, a call, a person fills out the application for a, uh, a, what's called a 209A order after the statute, an abuse prevention order, uh, and they call and the judge makes a decision as to whether or not it's appropriate to grant the order uh, over the phone. And in those cases, uh, it's been modified a little in light of the COVID situation, but in in normal times anyway, the order is only good until court opens the next day and both parties can appear uh, in front of a judge. Um, there's a question that friends of mine, after they have jury duty, they come back to me and they say, and you may not know the answer to this, and they'll say, why doesn't the courthouse have Wi-Fi? Do you have any idea? <laughs> primitive at this point, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, I think it's a it's getting to be a major problem that we don't and and um, is it a money thing? Uh, it, it is a money thing, and it's 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 not just the money to purchase the Wi-Fi. It's that in most cases, at least so I'm told, the building is so old that the difficulties of ah. getting it in place and the expense of uh, getting it in place. Uh, would be uh, uh, prohibitive or, or 
or so I've been told. Um, I, I do think, uh, particularly now, when you're bringing jurors in and people are sitting there, they've had their jury orientation and they're waiting to find out if they're going to be called to the courtroom for jury service or they're waiting while the judge is interviewing another panel of prospective jurors. And, and they may be sitting in the, uh, the uh, collective jury room there for some hours waiting, waiting to be called unavoidably. Uh, it's, it's difficult to say to people, well, I know you brought your laptop so you could get some work done or watch videos or whatever you want to do, or I know you brought your smartphone, but uh, we just don't have anything to accommodate you here. So uh, next time, maybe you'll know to bring a book or your knitting or a crossword puzzle or something. Uh, but I think that's, uh, I think that's a change that the court system uh, has to make. And uh, happily, uh, I'm not responsible for it. So uh, the most I can say is I'm certainly on board with them making that change. You know, another change that might be, from what I see, when jurors come in, they're usually really, really tense. They're really nervous. And I, I, it's, it's sad because the judge is like not, the judge is your friend. They're not there to ruin your day. And there's just so like, but I think they're thinking, oh my goodness, if I don't work for two weeks, can I make my mortgage? And the Commonwealth gives them $50 a day after the first three days of service. To me, that's obsolete. You want to get a good cross-section of jurors. Like my sister recently had jury duty in the Southwest. She was in Arizona. If you have a full-time job, Arizona paid those people $350 a day to sit as a juror. And my sister got a nice amount of money, but it was commensurate with like what she's doing right now in her life. Like it was all different. It had a scale of different. Why is it still $50 a day? You probably don't even know that. Well, you know, I, I, I'd like to uh, fight with you about something, Diane, so we could generate a little controversy. <laughs> so, uh, but once again, I'm forced to completely agree with you. I think the money that we pay jurors is, uh, is completely inadequate. And uh, again, I'm going to pass the buck and say that's something for the legislature to address. They're the ones that appropriate the, the money. But I, I don't think you'd get much disagreement amongst judges that uh, uh, jurors deserve better pay than they're getting. And I think it's just one of those things where the issue has, hasn't been revisited. And uh, I think uh, we're, we're overdue to uh, revisit it and make an improvement. You know, th there's a few things that I see, and I wanted to just see if you agree or not. Like, like I believe that jurors, if they are college students, exempt them until they get their college degree. It's not really an issue out here, but when I sit in Boston, Northeastern and Boston University all day long, they don't want to serve. They can't. It's going to mess up their semester, their lab, their co-op, their, and they're beside themselves. And another thing, when women are expectant and they're ready to have a baby, if they're seated on the jury, they usually don't get to the end of the, the trial. I mean, I thought maybe the legislator, legislature would. Have seen that a lot. What? 
Have you seen that a lot? Pregnant jurors not getting to the end of the trial? Yeah, like there's always a problem, you know, and and I was saying give them a pass till the end, like when they're expecting like in another month or so or six weeks. You guys usually let them go, though, the judges, if they want to. You guys let them go. Sure. I I would never make a pregnant juror who was uh, uh, concerned either because she had some issue with her pregnancy or if she said, uh, judge, you know, uh, I'm, I'm doing two weeks and you're saying this trial is only going to be a week, but what if I'm a week early or, you know, any of those reasons, you know, thank you very much. You're, you're excused, but you know, sometimes you get pregnant jurors and they're, they're past their initial three months and they're doing well and, uh, they want to serve. Uh, and, uh, I, uh, I hear what you're saying, but I think the flip side of it is, um, I don't think we should tell people that just because they're pregnant, if they're capable of serving, uh, no, we're not going to let you come back after you've had your baby. Oh, I didn't mean that. I just meant in, it should be like optional, like if they want to take a pen. But then again, people don't realize they can re take their jury service and put it ahead 365 days. If they, I don't think many people realize that when they get that summons, they have the option to pick a different day within that within an, another year. Yes, I think uh, sometimes people get a little nervous when they get the the summons and they don't read it carefully and they don't see that they have that option, even though it's on there. And, and yes. the other thing, of course, is if you are 70, there's that age again, or older, you can check a little box and say, I'm a senior citizen, uh, I don't wish to come in for jury service, and you're excused. But but I see, uh, I see jurors people in the jury pool who are 70 or, or over uh, quite frequently. And I usually ask them, you know, you're entitled to be excused if you wish. And uh, sometimes they didn't realize that, but other times they'll say, well, you know, I'm retired and this is a good opportunity for me to do my civic duty and I'd like to be considered. So- And you get the free Commonwealth lunch too. Well, that's, that's <laughs> true. Sumptuous as it is. <laughs> I just have one more question that uh, yes. is is pretty broad ranging. But of all the challenges and the duties of a judge, where does sentencing rank in terms of the importance to you as an individual, and and obviously the importance to the case? It's probably the most dramatic moment that people are part of in a in a jury trial that has been decided. What, what's your take on that? Uh, I think it's probably the most important thing that I do. Uh, it's, uh, it's a terrific responsibility to come up with uh, an appropriate uh, sentence. And uh, it's also, um, it's, it's, it's also, if it comes at the end of the trial, um, as opposed to a plea, that's where I have the most flexibility in terms of the sentence I'm going to impose. Uh, and uh, you want the sentence to be appropriate uh, and you want it to be fair. And uh, you're also aware that uh, you're probably not going to make everybody happy with the, with the sentence. Let's, 
let's uh, put it that way. Uh, yeah. One of the things you need to think about is whether the sentence is proportional, that is to say, it's the same sentence that you would give or that other judges on the court would give is in the ballpark for similarly situated people, people who had a similar record and committed the same or a similar crime with similar type of uh, impact. But um, I think among the most difficult cases to sentence on uh, might be a motor vehicle homicide case. Uh, and that's because uh, the harm to the victim and the victim's family is enormous. The, the victim is just as dead as if they have been murdered. But on the other hand, um, very rarely was there any kind of intent on the part of the driver of the car uh, to cause that kind of harm. And it might be a person who, who has no record at all. Uh, and you're asking yourself, you know, is it, what is this a person who needs to be rehabilitated? Is this does it make sense to incarcerate this person for however many years? Um, you're conscious of the fact you're taking him away from uh, his family, and that has consequences. And the attitudes of victims in those kinds of cases. Can be very different. I have had family members who would tell me, uh, my loved one was not a vengeful person. I understand that it was an accident. Judge, I'd like you to sentence uh, this defendant to uh, community service and alcohol education programs and that sort of thing, uh, but I don't see the point in incarcerating. And then you have other uh, people who have lost their family member that say, Judge, I'm never going to see my daughter grow up. I'm never going to dance at her wedding. I'm never going to see her have children. I'm never going to have any grandchildren. She's gone for the rest of my life. She's gone forever. I want you to sentence this person to the maximum possible sentence that you can. Well, you can't accommodate both of those extremes, and it's even harder to accommodate both of those extremes and take those defendants who may be very similarly situated, apart from the attitude of the victim's family, and give them a comparable uh, sentence. So um, the criminal justice system is a... Is a is a very rough instrument for um, affording people justice, at least in the restorative sense. You can't give uh, people whose homes were broken into back their sense of uh, safety and security. You can't give rape victims back their uh, virginity or sense of bodily integrity, and uh, you can't restore dead people to their loved ones. Um, at the same time, the sentence you impose has uh, very significant consequences. So uh, I think it's the hardest and most important part of my job.
I think we're going to start to run out of time, but there's a couple other things that there's a few things I'd like to ask you. Um, first of all, is it true that a judge has the power? I've never seen it done to just go out onto the street and make citizens come in and serve. Someone told me that you can do that. Not that anyone would ever entertain doing that to citizens, but does that does a judge have the power to do that? Or is that it, fun? Yes, we can. It goes back to colonial times. I've never done it, and I don't know any other judge in my time as a lawyer that has. I don't think they'd win any popularity contest if they did that. I'll tell you that right now. Well, but I, I don't just... know that we're winning a whole lot of popularity <laughs> contests anyhow, Diane. But, uh, I, I agree. You know, there's one thing that used to happen down at Norfolk Superior in Dedham. I think it was like once a month or so. They were called Massachusetts State Lottery case cases, and there'd be a ton of them and they'd come in and it was recipients, you know, they'd won the lottery and they wanted, I think, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I never quite understood. They, they wanted to take a lump sum as opposed to over time being paid the winnings and a judge had to give his or her stamp of approval to make, like there was a private company that would come in or something. Can you explain that? Right. Well, um, of course, if you if you win mega bucks or one of those, you know, not the eight hundred dollars scratch tickets, but if you win one of those big money lottery things, uh, supposedly you win five million or three million or, or whatever the amount happens to be, uh, but you don't get the check for five million less taxes. You get told we'll pay this out to you over a period of X number of years. I think it's usually twenty. Uh, so, so you, you get it that way. And, um, some people decide, well, I, <clears throat> I really need the money for this, or I'd really like to have the money for this. Uh, so is there any way I can get a lump sum? Well, the short answer is not from the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. You can't, but if you want to sell your rights, uh, to the lump sum to some company, uh, they will give you a lump sum, but of course they're going to take uh, a percentage out of it. That's how they make their profit. It's just like you can sell your insurance policy or your annuity or uh, in a tort case, if you have a structured settlement where you're supposed to be getting so much money each year, uh, you can sell that to one of these companies and uh, they give you a... Uh, the discounted value of your million dollars or whatever it is, plus they take their uh, uh, their percentage. Uh, so the legislature has decided uh, it's it's one of uh, a number of categories. Another one is a settlement of tort cases for suits brought on behalf of minors that uh, before uh, the they're going to uh, agree to let you sell, in effect, your lottery winnings to a company uh, that a judge has to uh, pass on it and make sure there's some legitimate basis for it and you're not being cheated. The judge has to sign off on it. And um, I don't know that I've ever refused to to approve one of those. You, uh, you, you want to... Uh, assure yourself that they've spoken to a lawyer. Ideally, they've spoken to more than one of these companies so that they've 
they've got a sense of what the offers are and um, hopefully when you hear the percentage the company is uh, is taking that they've agreed to it's not uh, shocking to you um, I recall saying to one woman are you sure you want to do this uh, this doesn't strike me as that good a deal and she said judge I need the money to pay my mother's expenses in the nursing home I can't wait for the check wow. year, I need the money now. And wow. it's hard to argue with that. Well, this has been really wonderful. And before we depart, I'd like to just ask, is there anything that you can see as a sitting judge that you would think would be beneficial to help the, the comings and goings of the court? Like, is there anything you'd like to see changed? I don't mean legislature, what like a, a law, but just in the way that the courthouse runs day to day. Is there anything that you see? Water bubblers. Yes, that would be nice. Uh, as you know, Diane, we used to have these uh, pitchers of, of water and we had them for everybody, uh, the lawyers and the judge and so forth. And then uh, came the time that uh, the Commonwealth was going through a budget shortage. And I'm sure some bright young man got a pay raise for figuring out that if we no longer provided water in all the courthouses of the Commonwealth that the Commonwealth could save X hundred thousand a year. So it would be nice to have that back. I would love to be able to uh, uh, offer the jurors coffee and maybe a pastry every morning when they come in. I think that would be nice and, and civilized. Um, maybe even spring for lunch on days when they're not deliberating, but certainly right. at least a little coffee during the uh, break, coffee or tea. Uh, I just, uh, I think a few of those touches go, go a long way. I'm old enough to remember when they used to get that in the morning, you know, and it was nice. And the, and the, the lunches, might I add, weren't just like deli sandwiches. They were elaborate sometimes, like really, They'd go over the North End and, and go all out. But um, I also, I was laughing when you said about the pitchers, because we had a joke. It's not a trial until a lawyer spills the water pitcher all over his or her papers. Because they were, I think they were booby trapped. If you didn't do it right, the water went everywhere. Yeah, I, I have to admit, I did that myself a few <laughs> times when I was uh, a lawyer. It's... Uh... It's always a little embarrassing. And I don't know who had the contract for the plastic cups, but they always seemed to leak. Leaked, yes. So a savvy lawyer, he would always double cup his, his lawyer uh, in case of leakage. I don't know where the state even buys that toilet paper. It's like sandpaper. I've never seen toilet paper like it, except for in the courthouses. And the whiteout is what? Like, it, it doesn't, I don't know. That's a... Podcast I think that's part of our sandpaper recycling program, <laughs> Diane. So, well, Jordan, you know, is it it's green? You can't complain about that. <laughs> that's right, Jordan. Is there anything else you can think of you'd like to ask the judge? Uh, I would. I would just like to compliment the judge on first of all, you're you're able to answer questions of great magnitude and then talk about the toilet paper. I think that's a <laughs> shows a great range. But no, I I think uh, allowing Diane the opportunity to interview you for the most part is is such a, a fresh take on what life is really like for a judge. And I just wanted to say thank you for all of us uh, in the Commonwealth for hanging in there. And uh, if you ever do need a gavel, I'm starting a gavel company. 
for judges who need gavels. So let me know. That'll be great. I, uh, <laughs> one thing that I hope that uh, comes about perhaps as a result of uh, increasing use of Zoom uh, is that uh, perhaps some of our trials will be more available in terms of being televised. Our courtrooms normally are open to the public. Anybody can walk in, but uh, not everybody's aware of that. So um, perhaps we'll have uh, uh, more uh, online uh, broadcast of uh, proceedings and the public will get a better idea of what we do. And I thank you both. Uh, I hope I've contributed a little to uh, public understanding of, of what goes on. Once again, I'd like to thank Judge Robert Cosgrove for being our guest today. It was my pleasure. This is Diane Godfrey. This podcast is meant for entertainment purposes only. If you need legal representation, please consult an attorney. I do not have a law degree. Over the years, many people have contacted me seeking legal advice. I am not qualified to dispense any legal advice. Before we close the courtroom door on this podcast, we remind you that All Rise with Diane Godfrey is available on all podcast platforms. We invite you to subscribe, download, rate, and review this podcast. You've been listening to All Rise with Diane Godfrey. True stories from inside the courthouse, from the lady who wrote everything down. Case dismissed.